0: The, the paper trail is there, but I had a plan. I had a scheme. I had a plot. Uh, I, thought, I thought, okay, if I could find out exactly what the Catholic Church teaches, I could then prove how that they are in error. That although they can historically connect themselves through the bishops and the churches back to the apostles, because they are in error theologically, because they were in heresy, They can then therefore not claim to be the true church, right? That was my plan, right? I can prove that. They're heretical in their teachings, and I would be off the hook. I wouldn't have to be Catholic. So I found a catechism, same catechism I still have today, and I read it from cover to cover, from front to back. And after I read it, I realized I had no reason not to become Catholic. (laughs) Uh, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it was over. I had to become Catholic. It was just too much uh, reason and logic in there. So, and everything was verifiable. And so what, what had to change was my understanding of the Bible, right? I was, you know, the Catholic church wasn't a problem. I was the problem. So, um, so yeah, the, the Catholic, the catechism played a huge role in my conversion. And it is still my go-to book when I teach RCIA, uh, when I teach RCIA in my parish. There's two books I use. I use the catechism. The big green one we haven't got the blue ones yet The big green one and i use my book on the liturgy called the divine symphony those are two books i use so so we're going to get some understanding from an expert today an expert on catechesis aaron sang about the history um, of the catholic catechism throughout the world what are what are the processes that go into creating catechism what are what are some controversies of the order catechism and uh, we'll also be talking about his work at TradiVox and the work to restore the ancient catechisms of the church for a modern study and exploration. So that's going to be a really exciting talk. I'm looking forward to it. If you are just tuning in, this is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. Uh, to be part of the show, just call in at 877-757-9424. That's 877 877- 9424 or you can tweet at me at dlg on grn that's dlg on grn also just comment on the video if you are watching the live stream on youtube or on um, the facebook page the liturgical season of lent is right around the corner did you know that i mean it's right around the corner ash wednesday is february 17th this year and on that day one of my favorite people in the world will be in the studio again janique stewart miss janique stewart will be back um third thursday of every month on voicing truth and reason is pro-life wednesday and so she'll be on we'll be talking about some pro-life issues next wednesday father tron will be on talking about his book the imitation of mary in which he writes about the 12 essential qualities of Mary that merit supernatural grace and he explains that like like any gift these graces must be open and used after they're received of the course the day after our broadcast is um, February 11th and that day we celebrate the feast of our Our Lady of Lourdes so that Wednesday before the Feast of Our Ladies Lord Lords is a great day to talk about mom, our spiritual mother, Mary. Um, on my YouTube page, um, either I think tomorrow morning or maybe if I get around to it later on tonight, be on the lookout for a video that I'm putting out about uh, Freemasonry. I haven't really put a video out lately about Freemasonry. Um, and so I'm going to be talking about the Carbonari and the Alta Vendetta. You may have heard about this document, the Alta Vendetta, about a Masonic plot to destroy the church from within. A lot of people think that this document is actually a Masonic document, that the Carbonari or group uh, were somehow associated with the Freemasons. So I'm going to explain the truth behind that. Who actually are the Carbonari? What is their the document, Alta Vendetta? was about? And so um, be on the lookout for that on my, my YouTube page. Last week, I gave you guys what are what I call it, the five singularities of the Holy Eucharist. The five singularities of the Holy Eucharist. These were the five things that make the Holy Eucharist the most unique and most singular among all the other six sacraments. And I also talk about how the Holy Eucharist is the most unique and most singular amongst the other three presences of God at the Holy Mass. And so today, I'm going to follow that talk up with briefly about why it's reasonable or, re- or not to believe that um, most Catholics do not believe that the real presence, uh, believe in the real presence of Jesus at the Holy Mass. If you believe polls, a uh, 2019 survey by Pew Research found that most Catholics, most self-described, self-identified Catholics do not believe that they do not believe in the source and summon of our faith, which is amazing. Like, why are you Catholic if you do not believe that? I mean, there has to be a whole lot of other easier religions i don't know uh, buddhism or something like that i mean if you if, if you don't believe the most unique thing about catholicism like why are you catholic but yeah that, that's what the survey said that the, that the holy eucharist they do not believe the holy 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 eucharist is truly the real body and blood of our lord jesus christ and that we truly consume his body and blood during the communion in fact according to the survey nearly seven in ten 69 69 percent say they person they personally believe they personally believe that during the holy the, during the Catholic Mass the bread and wine used in communion are just symbols just symbols of the body and blood of Jesus just one-third of US Catholics 31% say that during Catholic Mass the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus 31% believe in transubstantiation that's amazing like why are you Catholic so That poll came out and many people opined about it and pointed fingers here and there about why that's the case. We took it for granted that the poll or survey was true, but I wanted to take a moment here to consider some signs that may give some evidence locally, nationally, globally about why these numbers might be true and has not changed since that poll came out in 2019 and why we may not have any reason to believe that those numbers may not change in the near future. So the first reason, the first reason why these numbers are reasonable to believe is the lack of urgency. If we're only getting 20 to 35, 20 to 35% of Catholics to show up to Sunday mass, that's a fair indicator that most Catholics in that parish do not believe that something so unique, so singular, so essential to their salvation is happening at the parish that it demands that they come receive it and make time for it. And 20 to 35%, I know that's a thats a stretch right now because of the response to COVID. But I mean, we can gloss over the fact and accept that these attendance numbers are normal, but that's abnormal. If you think about it in the light of the teaching and the reality of who comes to visit us at every liturgy, that's a really low number, so the lack of urgency the second reason to believe that these numbers are um, reasonable is the unworthy unworthy reception if the line for communion has a hundred people in it right you know when time thompson for communion almost everybody in the church gets up and goes receive communion almost everybody right but a few hours before or a little while before we looked at the confession line nobody was in it maybe one person maybe one person so i think that's another indicator that well, it's two things are going on there, right? Either everyone is holy, everyone is a saint, no one is sinning, or a lot of people in a communion line may not actually believe that the host is God because they would not harm themselves in that way and cause damage to their soul by receiving him unworthily. A third indicator that these numbers might be reasonable to believe, I think, is the lack of intention. The lack of intention. If a parish has frequently... Has frequent adoration or 24 hour adoration of the whole Eucharist. I think that's a good sign that the parish is somewhat healthy. But if the adoration coordinator cannot get more than just the usual suspects to show up and spend time with God, I think that's another sign that the parishioners may not actually believe that the whole Eucharist is truly Jesus because who would not go out of their way just to spend a few minutes with Jesus? To go sit at his feet for just a just a moment. So those are just the three quick reasons why I think it's a reasonable to believe the pure research numbers are valid. Now, as for why we should not expect for those numbers to change anytime soon, here are some quick reasons. And I'll come back next week and we'll talk some more about some reasons why, maybe some reasons to hope that they may change, okay? But for now, here's some reasons why, you know, some quick reasons why we may not expect for them to change. Well, the first reason is that the numbers may not change anytime soon is because of detached homilies detached homilies for some reason most pastors do not craft their homilies in a way to excite people about what's about to happen next they don't craft their homilies in in a way to get people excited They, they don't tease them there's no no liturgical foreplay they do not pump you up about what's about to happen next The homily could be like a pep rally for the whole Eucharist. It's time to get ready. Let's go. But too often, the homily is either a stand-up comedy routine or a political stump speech The homilies are detached from the greatest thing in a universe that is about to happen. So if a priest is acting like nothing is important about to happen, why would we think something extraordinary is about to happen? The homily may be good. It may be delivered well. It may be about a topic of importance, but as I say about all theology, any theology that does not connect to the source and summit of our faith is like straw. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. There's a saying that we have in Dominican spirituality that's attributed to St. Dominic that says we must only either speak to God or about God. Anything else is pointless. The second reason why there may not be any any change in these percentages is just the cost of scandal if people see politicians who work against what the catholic church believes receives the holy communion and then we are told that 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 abortion is a grave sin homosexual acts are grave sin and that, that people who promote other evils and other intrinsic evils like euthanasia should not receive the holy communion why would we believe but we see but then we see these most powerful people in in government receive Holy Communion why would we believe that it's actually Jesus nothing damages some people's faith faster than hypocrisy and duplicity here's the last reason the last reason the third reason why we might not may not see any change in these percentages is because of lack of reverence when Priests and people treat the Holy Eucharist flippantly, irreverently, dropping Jesus without any care, being very casual in distributing Jesus, just very casual, as the way we might eat or share popcorn. Why would anyone believe that it is actually a person being handled? People have more care for the way they treat their pet animal than the way they handle Jesus at the Mass. And that is why people will be quick to say that dogs are people too, but will not hesit- they will hesitate to say that the Holy Eucharist is Jesus too. So we have a lot of work today, a lot of work to do today and, and moving forward, and we need to get to it. If you're just tuning in, this is the David L. Gray Show on Guadalupe Radio Network, voicing truth and reason. To be part of the show, you can call in at 877-757-9424, again that's 877-757-9424, or you can tweet at me at DLG on GRN, that's hashtag DLG on GRN. Also, you can just comment on the video if you're streaming on YouTube or, or Facebook. Exactly what is the catechism? Of the catholic church what is its history there's a common misunderstanding in this modern age that every paragraph of the catholic catechism belongs to the body of infallible or dogmatic documents of the catholic church or on to help us understand the history and purpose of the catholic catechism better um, who's going to help us understand this whole thing better its history what it's for is mr aaron sang who is the founder and president of tradivox um, his best-known work is the International Acclaimed Catholic Catechism Index, which was a monumental project under the advisement of Bishop Athanasius Snyder. Its purpose is to restore the long-lost tradition of catechisms um, to a worldwide audience. Aaron holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree um, and a master's degree in theology and catechesis from Franciscan University of Steubenville, a place that I I love dearly and spent some time at myself. Um, And he has worked as a theology teacher and a diocesan director um, and healthcare mission leader. In addition to being a sought after speaker and author, his articles have appeared in publications both academic and popular. Quite impressive. Welcome on to voicing truth and reason, Aaron hey thank you there david good to be on with you yeah definitely so real quick um so if you're listening on radio you know you can't see me but i'm showing aaron some things i have here so aaron i have a saint joseph catechism here i have a compendium of the catechism of the catholic church here i have a a book by john a Hardin, a jesuit called the catholic catechism a contemporary catechism on the teachings of the catholic church here i have a big red book here it's called the united states catechism for adults and and i have the green catechism so what's going on here why do i have all all these different (laughs) books that call themselves catechisms well
1: Well, you you're you're very heavily equipped over there it looks like (laughs) (laughs) oh it's great great yeah the um I guess to, to zoom maybe zoom out and zoom in a little bit on just a, a, a brief kind of overview of what, what a catechism is, if that might be helpful.
0: Um, yeah, definitely.
1: We could look at defining our terms maybe first, a very scholastic approach. Uh, the modern sense of the word catechism would be, yes, this kind of a written document, a, a single text, concisely, systematically presenting the revealed truths of faith. We hear catechism. Uh, we we usually think book nowadays. Um, the former use though the term was a lot broader. Uh, it's it's really the Latin base being doctrina or just teaching generally. Uh, it could be an active noun also. And then the root of the word itself is the Greek katakine, which is more like an echoing or a resounding sound. Uh, so the emphasis here is is always on oral communication. This is one of the reasons that a lot of the St. Joseph's there and, and a lot of catechisms are going to be a, a Q&A format. There's typically this emphasis on oral uh, instruction and, and repetition. So, but we we have this kind of simple, basic instruction in the truths of salvation, uh, really as early as Pentecost. I mean, Acts chapter two, uh, all the way to the present day. But if we look at narrowing kind of our focus of the term to this. Monumental aspect of cat what's called the monuments tradition this uh, external artifact of some kind that, that contains a teaching in catholic doctrine that's that's a little bit narrower we'd have to include there though uh, you know the the decay writings of many of the church fathers uh, as well as stained glass windows i mean these are these are catechism of faith baptismal font um, a lot of church architecture popular miracle plays uh, virtue dramas this was a this was a uh, kind of a, a five-star entertainment for uh, especially the middle ages. So we narrow ourselves, you know, a little further down to that current sense of the term, as as just like you've got there on your shelf, you know, a single written document that bears the approbation of a bishop, usually uh, one or more, and then it concisely, systematically presents truths of the faith. Um, that that's usually where we where we kind of focus in today is that that sense of a catechism, you know, a book, um, and and I've got to say too, it's it's not a sixteenth century Protestant invention. I, I keep, I've done a couple of radio spots recently and that that comes up now and again. It's like, well, wasn't this kind of a, a Protestant thing? Like maybe Luther invented it, and then Catholics had to kind of catch up, you know, <laughs> like this Counter Reformation you know effort. But but no, yeah, the the history doesn't bear that out. The the genre of, of catechism certainly it exploded in popularity uh, in the 1500s, not only given the, the Protestant revolt, but also, and and maybe even especially, the introduction of more efficient mechanized print uh, at the time. So uh, the reality is there are many Catholic catechisms for centuries prior to this, um, especially after Lateran IV. That that. That's, that's probably the best bookend uh, for the genre is and for ecumenical council uh, 1215. And you get really in that council, there's a call for uh, the, the annual duty. So, so Catholics do reminding them, you know, at least once a year come and be fully confessed to your sins. Uh, part of that entails this, this kind of focused instruction in the truth of the faith. Um, and so, so really from there, you get this, this beginning kind of growing these, this genre of, especially for priests, what's, what's kind of a small rote manual that I can both help my parishioners to, you know, prepare for confession. uh, And in that the same course of instruction, do this kind of explaining the basic truths of the faith again, you know, revisiting some of that, what, what, what some today might call, you know, adult faith formation is these little beginning of these manuals for priests. So Lateran four, 1215 is probably the best early, uh, bookend, and there are several, of course, for, for the subsequent centuries, w- well even before Luther is born. So th- that's maybe a good snapshot of the genre. If you kind of begin at, at Lateran 4, 1215, you get a big uh, jump, of course, in, in those texts uh, at Trent and, and after Trent, especially after the Catechism of Trent, the 1566, uh, and then if it just continues to today. So, so finding a uh, so even even some Catholics today are kind of surprised to learn that you know there are thousands of catechisms in the Catholic tradition but but that is a fact yeah
0: yeah and so yeah thanks for that thanks for that summary that was really good you brought us up to I think a really good point there to, to move forward and like I always say great conver- great conversations begin with great definitions so thanks for defining you know what a catechism is that's awesome um but if, if we're looking back at that bookend like you said we're going back to Lateran and we're moving up gradually towards Trent. And I know you may want to, you know, have some local operations in between there, some local catechisms. But um, from what we understand, there wasn't a high literacy rate back then, right? So, was the catechism really intended for the laity, or was it, was it, as you're saying, was it mostly for the for the clerics?
1: Uh, yes, when it first began, it was certainly mostly intended for the clerics. The the earliest texts are are uh, either exclusively in Latin or um, Latin with you know facing pages of a of a vernacular. In fact, there's one that's that's really neat. It's um, uh, Watson, uh is the uh, the Speculum Christiani, and it's it's uh, this is one written again before Luther is born. <laughs> I think it was 1480 maybe. And it has uh, it has so it has the Latin you know, instruction for the faithful, and then uh, and then in, in uh, facing sections you have little verse, little English sections of English verse. So in, in English vernacular, here's a little rhyme that you can use, you know, with the faithful to help them kind of remembering this this paragraph, you know, this this section of, of the catechism. So so certainly when it begins, you know, the, the emphasis is on giving the priests something that they can turn around uh, in, for instruction the faithful. Um, but as it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a matched curve, you know, you, you see literacy grows and even early on, uh, wealthy families that, that, have, uh, the means to, to be educated themselves would, would, own catechisms themselves too. Um, so it's, but, but certainly after the mechanized print comes on board, you, you have this kind of simultaneous, uh, r- pretty rapid growth in just general literacy. And so right there with it is, you know, more, more catechism. And, and um, yeah, the late 1500s and then early 1600s is really when that, that genre explodes. And you see catechisms just, just coming out all, all over the place. I mean, even after Trent, um, uh, yeah, even, well, prior to Trent and then right after Trent, it wasn't like now there was the, the Roman catechism or, you know, a.k.a. the, the catechism the Council of Trent. It wasn't that that was somehow exclusive to all other catechisms or, or it was like a full stop. If anything, it was just the opposite. That was kind of a, a further stimulus to additional text and that kind.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because you think about a catechism today, um, um, or the one that was initially promulgated by um, St. Pope John Paul II, we think of like an official document of the Catholic Church that, that's put out in, in the sense, of, okay, this is the official teaching, but... What, what was going on back at, what happened at Trent? What was the, the motivation of that catechism, and why wasn't it widely dispersed as the official catechism? Why do people take the liberties to have the various different catechisms?
1: Well, when uh, Trent was, was issued, it was intended and expressly, I mean expressly intended by the council itself uh, for priests. It, it was intended to be a really a, a compendium for the use of priests and and of course at that time too you had uh all of the all of the initial editions were latin were exclusively latin uh for the same reason that uh, all the conciliar texts were always latin anything that was officially promulgated as a, a magisterial document especially at that level was uh, was always exclusively latin you would have some approved translations, you know, in in many years later kind of a thing. But at the time that the Roman Catechism first lands uh, for for priests in Latin, there are already, as I mentioned before, several catechisms, many of them in vernacular already, that were widely popular. Of course, the the single most popular at that time was Canisius. There are several uh, catechisms by St. Peter Canisius, the Great Jesuit, um, and it translated into every vernacular under the sun, it was one of the greatest-selling books for, I think it was like 400 years or something. I mean, it was this incredibly popular work, and uh, and met a tremendous need for um, vernacular instruction in, in the truth of the faith, very simple, and uh, and particularly well-suited to the new mechanized print methods that we mentioned.
0: Yeah, what are some um, as we head up to to the break? Um, and as, After we come back, we're talking with Aaron Sang here, who has He's doing a phenomenal work. He's a President and Founder at, at Um and, and so He's talking about the history of the Catechism The importance, and after we come back From the break, we're going to be starting to get into Some, some um, controversies Of the Catechism and in, in, in history Past and some of the things that's going on With the Catechism now, with the importance Of the work that he's doing about Collecting all these Catechisms from throughout the history of the Catholic Church. Before before we head to, to the break Aaron, um, what, what were some of your your favorite catechisms like if you had to teach an RCA class and I know that you've done some teaching, what's your what's your go-to for a catechism? What do you use?
1: Oh I was really hoping this question wouldn't come up. this is always <laughs> this is always the hardest one to answer. Uh, well if they, to, to use in the past, I mean in, in truth, Having taught in different capacities, I really do use the whole shelf. I mean, I there every every catechism that has been issued is intended for you know a, a particular audience uh, particular setting. Uh, they they all have pluses and minuses you know going for them. so so really, even in in our home, I mean teaching with our kids and uh, and going through that is is i I just I get familiar enough with them. That i know you know this one's for for the really little ones we we would use the ones that had great pictures i mean that was just mm-hmm. a great uh kind of standby as they got a little older you know we'd say well this one has great stories It actually it's a catechism in the form of story so it's kind of a narrative text so so that's kind of a a, a punt uh i guess but if i was pressed though and, and i could only use one uh and, and that one couldn't be volume 20 of our Tredavoc series, which is going to be a comprehensive index of all of these. You know, So so if I couldn't use that, I had to pick one old catechism. It, it would probably be one of Father Mueller's uh, catechisms, a great American priest, 1870s. Uh, it, it would probably be one of his. He wrote several. He was prolific and just a master catechist. Uh, th- that or, or possibly the Catechism of Pius X, uh, which is is still you know very popular for good reason um, but Mueller's I, I find Mueller's great to be uh, both taught from as well as handed off that, that's one value that I see and, and a need that I see in in a, in a catechism and just formerly that was a big focus uh, for most of the catechetical genre was a text that someone could instruct from but also you could just you could hand it off to somebody and be mm-hmm. fairly confident that you know, this is readable. <laughs> you know, Somebody's is going to uh, go home with this giant tome and, you know, use it for a, a, a doorstop and just forget about it. You know, it's <laughs> actually something that they might read and, and learn the truth of the faith.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. So we will return shortly with Mr. Aaron Sang here on Voicing Truth and Reason, the David L. Gray Show on Guadalupe Radio Network. I heard that the GRN is raffling off a 2021 Mercedes-Benz GLA 250.
2: Miyagi loves support Catholic Radio on GRN.
0: Where can you get tickets?
2: Thing called internet. <laughs> Go to grnonline.com. One ticket, $25. Five ticket, $100. Drawing in the March 1st. Name drawn March 4th. What are you going to do if you win? Give to you. Practice wax on, wax off. Hey, Sissel, I'm really excited about how our new show, Back to the Father, is going so far. I know. Each Friday at 4 p.m. Central, I've enjoyed learning how to apply the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas and his Summa Theologica to everyday life. Yeah, life can get so complicated, we really need to focus on our final end, God himself, in the midst of our lives that can get so busy and can be filled with so many distractions. Sissel, you there? Hmm? Oh, sorry. I was just watching a cute puppy video.
1: Ugh. The universe is filled with order from top to bottom. And it's a beautiful order. And not only is it beautiful, it's an order that we can actually comprehend. And it's almost as if we have been made to be able to comprehend that order in the universe, to be able to contemplate it so that we can see maybe that purpose behind it.
0: Please visit Father Spitzer's website, magiscenter.com,
2: to watch this beautiful and important video about purpose and God's creation. That's
0: magiscenter.com.
2: Hey, Dave, guess what? What? The Guadalupe Radio Network is coming to Tyler, Texas. Let's celebrate! <laughs> Whoa! And we're having a special launch show on Wednesday, February 10th at 8 a.m. across the whole network to welcome our newest station, KEES 1430 a.m. The program will be hosted by you, Dave Palmer, and you'll be joined by special guest, Bishop Joseph Strickland of the Diocese of Tyler. It's going to be great, right, Dave? Oh, huh, what'd you say? I haven't heard a word you said since the noisemaker.
3: My ears are still ringing. Oops. In today's day and age, it's even more important than ever to find a new source that you can trust. That's why the GRN started producing the Catholic Drive Time Show, which airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 7.30 a.m. Central Time. Hi, this is Len Oswald, President of the Guadalupe Radio Network, with your GRN Family Minute. The Catholic Drive Time Show is your one-stop source for breaking news through a Catholic lens. Our team covers all the headlines featuring guest interviews, daily scripture readings, and even weekly prize giveaways. With all the news from Rome to D.C., find out what you need to know before you start work each morning. Tune in each weekday from 6 to 7.30 a.m. Central Time. The Catholic Drive Time Show will inspire you and keep you in the loop. We are your Catholic radio station, radio for your soul. And I want to thank you for being part of the Guadalupe Radio Network family.
0: Welcome back into the David O. Gray Show, Voicing Truth and Reason on Guadalupe Radio Network. If you want to be part of the show, just call in at 877-757-9424. Again, that's 877-757-9424. And I'm, we're talking with Aaron Sang, who is the president and founder over at Tradavox. He has an exciting project. I mean, he's putting together his. It's been so. You know, we usually we usually we usually think think of catechism as like that big green book that we have, but or we may think of the, the catechism of Trent or the Baltimore Catechism. But catechism have a rich history. There's been, he said, hundreds of them throughout the centuries, local, national. So it's really an exciting talk. Uh, participate in it if you would like. Aaron, when, when, before we went to the break, you were telling us about some of your your favorite um, catechisms. But what's what is what's exciting about the project that you're doing now? Because you're you're coming to you're having exposure to so many catechisms that's been part of our tradition. What's what's exciting about discovering these?
1: Well, I'm uh, kind of a bookworm, so it's just exciting to be <laughs> I have an excuse to look at some old books, right? But on top of that, I think the most uh, exciting part for our team, as a whole, we're you know, we're about uh, I guess almost sixty now, uh, several different countries that, that have been working on this over the last several years, and um, throughout the team, I think the common Excitement point is uh, is just the continuity. I mean, if there was one word, it, it would be that the continuity of the doctrine that is maintained in these texts. And we are talking about a you know the better part of a millennium of spread uh, from in 1200s to the the mid 1900s. You're talking about every possible cultural setting, you know, suburban America to sub-Saharan Africa to post-industrial India to, you know, medieval Italy. I mean, it's just amazing to see every one of these texts uh, ha- have this kind of hallmark um, continuity point. And, and the, the constant theme in, with all of the authors, of course, is this desire and, and um, express, you know, aim at taking pains to say nothing original, uh, and that's really the voice of uh, the, the classical catechism is we, we are handing on what we have received. This is not a tool for doctrinal development. This is not a place for uh, novel theological language that's kind of being sorted out in the church. Uh, it, is, it is always a voice of just the, the common, what was formerly called you know, the common doctrine, the church's common doctrine, the received doctrine. And uh, so to see that across time and space is really the potency of this project. Uh, the, obviously, the hardback series is a big part of that. Um, it's been awesome to see what Sophia Institute Press has been able to do with the hardbacks. We partnered with them um, to do the 20-volume collection. So this will be the best of the best in English catechisms you know, over the better part of the last millennium. 20 different volumes. It'll be 30 between 30 and 40 different catechisms in those 20 volumes. Um, The final of which is going to be this master index volume. And that's, that's the one that I want, (laughs) Which, which will be the, the kind of comprehensive, you know, Hey, you want to see the Eucharist here? It is on, on, you know, in every catechism in this series, you know, every, every page, just be able to cite all of that at a glance. Um, but the part I think that most people get get really kind of jazzed about now, of course, is the whole new media tool suite, and so we are going to do that in an app. And if you can imagine, oh. the day when you know I can pull out my smart device of whatever kind and say, you know, instead of a Hey Alexa or Hey Siri or, or whatever, you know, look up a pizza shop, I can say um, to to this app, you know, what's what's the Catechism say about um, angels, and it, and it will talk back to me and say, you, do you want to hear this from, you know, sort of filter the results, which century do you want to hear it from, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and then read it back, you know, so I can have these, this just robo catechesis, you know, on the go from a suite of the master catechists of the last millennium. That's really the vision. That's what we're most excited about.
0: And where can people go to find out more about this project?
1: Our site, everything's on our site. It's just tradivox.com, uh, T-R-A-D-I-V-O-X.com. The idea is just the portmanteau for, you know, tradition and voice. So the, the voice of tradition, that's kind of our, our driving idea is that being able to give all of these master instructors in the faith a, a voice in, in our own time yeah. today.
0: Yeah, that's great. How, but how would this, how how does this work different? Then I have a, you know, I have a collections on my shelf about the, um, you know, the fathers of the faith, right? They've, they've, you know, we have collections of things they said. How is how how are the so how are these two collections different, or or do you see there's are the fathers also throughout the centuries speaking a lot of the same things that we you would see this continuity that that you're also talking about that you see in your um in your collection of catechisms.
1: Yeah, very very complementary, uh, similar format in, in terms of the kind of a multi-volume treatment and, or a topical treatment. The, the biggest difference is the genre of the catechism. Mm-hmm. So a- every catechism in its own time was, was really thought of as basically a Google <laughs> for, uh, for Catholic doctrine. You know, so, so this idea that let's take the works of the fathers, the interpretation of Scripture, just all of this kind of content, and it's amazing, you know. You read, you read Saint Augustine, so four hundreds, and he's already talking about. You could spend a lifetime and read, you know, all of this Catholic, uh, the the works of the fathers and things, and you could you'd still never be able to read it all. You know, this is in the four mm-hmm. hundreds. So today, of course, there's there's just an ocean of of information. There's, a, there's an ocean of that content. So the catechism as a genre was to be exactly that? How can I kind of curate all of that content, make it the most digestible kind of bite-sized forms, often targeted at a lay audience? Not always, but, but often targeted at a lay audience. And, and that was Google, you know, it was, it was the Catholic uh, Google for matters of faith and moral. So, yeah. so this tool, what we're doing with Tratabox is, is basically that, it's a Google of Google. So we can already have data that's distilled, you know, it's highly distilled and then I can see just at a glance that the same kind of teaching in these very small, nuggetable kind of excerpts right. across time and space from from the bishops across time and space.
0: Yeah, and but what is the authority of a catechism? Like I said at the opening of the show, I think there's an understanding from Catholics that it, that the catechism some sort of um I, th- I think maybe some catholics they pick it up catechism saying like, oh this is everything that the catholic church teaches this is like the, the official uh, pronouncement of the faith is the catechism that does it have that weight of authority
1: uh, no so the, the yeah the catechism is kind of a unique thing about the catechism's authority is that they're they're kind of in a class of their own in terms of their binding power so the, the entirety, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but the, the entirety of any given catechism has never been made binding on pain of sin. You know, this is the faith. You must adhere to this with religious sin. Uh Trent comes closest, the, the Roman catechism. Um, you know, it's commanded by an ecumenical council. It's composed in session of the council under the direction of a saint, near Charles Borromeo. Uh, it's, it's promulgated on the order of the council. By Pope Pius V and many subsequent popes, uh, they praise it. They require it for their priestly formation. One pope says, you know, it's, it's free from all danger of error, Clement thirteenth, but, but even that text is never made binding on pain of sin because uh, the authority of even that catechism, the authority of every catechism, uh, lies principally on what it represents, what it represents. That, that's what we were talking about earlier, this, the Church's common doctrine. So you never see a catechism that comes with the tagline, you know, the faithful must adhere with divine and Catholic faith to every statement in this document uh, or else they have made shipwreck of the faith and incur the wrath of Peter and Paul here. It's it's principally the doctrine itself that makes any given catechism more or less good, uh, useful, et cetera. Um, And this this is, it's a, it's a, um, again, not to get too, too far into the, the weeds. But the, the theological category here is the universal ordinary magisterium. That's okay. The function of a catechism is to, is to present the ordinary magisterium of a given bishop or bishop, so his, his normal teaching office. Um, what, what, the, what we're able to do with kind of stacking these up all alongside each other is to then say, well, look here at a window onto the universal ordinary magisterium. Look at all of these bishops across time and space giving voice to their teaching office by issuing this catechism Mm -hmm. Um, because the reality is it it was standard operating procedure for uh, uh, for most conscientious bishops from the 1600s to the 1960s to issue a catechism I mean they they would they would see a need for better knowledge of the faith in light of uh, you know some contemporary issues in their area they would write a local or maybe some of them would buddy up and and write a regional catechism in response to Uh, sometimes they would just stamp a, a, an older uh, catechism that had already had a wide approbation and was really still very uh, useful in that setting or in that language. Um, but th- yeah, this was pretty standard stuff uh, back when. So that, that's part of why we have so many, <laughs> so many of them. Uh, and that's, that's where the, the beauty of being able to trace that continuity of doctrine across all these yeah. things is so profound. Um, that, that's also why we, we hear a lot from folks today. I mean, it's it's very sad, but there's a lot of confusion today in the church. And we get write-ins from folks that only, they only read volume one of, of Archive, which, you know, it's a couple of catechisms from the 1500s, um, volume one of the Chatterbox series. And we get people calling in, writing in, I've never heard this. I've been a Catholic school my whole life. I've never, do we still believe this? Is this, is this actually what what is, is Catholic doctrine? You know, because <laughs> I've never heard it. Um, yeah. And here you've got grade schoolers were dying for this at the time that that catechism was written, you know. So that that's part of the beauty of it is being able to show all of those and put them in conversation with each other. All, all of these
0: bishops' text. Yeah. Do you for, do you foresee any problems that that may happen in once your series becomes widely um, popular? You know, the app is coming and things like that. And there may be exposure to a teaching that was in an older catechism that Catholics nowadays may not have been catechized about, right? Um, how does that How does that impact the Church today? This exposure to the old faith.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question, and and we're we're. A... We're very excited about that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we uh, when we first when we first began the work, we we really envisioned it as kind of a scholarly enterprise that wouldn't really have a a um a wide popular appeal. And when we approached uh, His Excellency Bishop Schneider uh, to, to kind of take the uh, episcopal advisement of the whole project, he he really encouraged us to to have that focus, kind of to get this content out more widely for the faithful. Uh, at this kind of popular level. And, and we're, we're so grateful that his, his excellency had that, uh, thought because we have been inundated. I mean, we, I, I, never would have imagined the kind of response that this project has gotten. We, we regularly get input from, I mean, all over the world, we get responses in broken English asking, you know, when are you going to have it in Portuguese? When are you going to have it in French? You know, uh, that's, that's a very big hunger for this, uh, in the midst of a, a very confusing period, frankly, um, and a lot of Catholics recognizing you know, they've been poorly catechized, and even those that have maybe a, uh, a contemporary catechism of course, the, the whole death penalty update you know in, in uh, 2018, and that's threw a lot of people for a loop. So what does it mean when we can update a catechism at the stroke of a pen and suddenly something that yesterday was always and everywhere uh, approved? is now is it admissible. What does that mean? You know, so we, we get that kind of feedback all the time. So being able to see the church's common doctrine in this concert, this kind of symphony of voices over time, it, it does, it, it creates a great conversation piece of, well, what am I to make now of what, what, maybe what father just said in his homily. I mean, is that oh. true? Or, or what I, what I learned in CCD. I mean, there, there are many points that, um, I think that's part of why we have a number of bishops, uh, well, and cardinals, too, that uh, have endorsed this project, is that um, they see the need. I mean, they, they see the need for a catechesis that is able to demonstrate its continuity with, with the church's tradition. And uh, golly, we, I mean, we could get in any number of, <laughs> of particular issues. You mentioned controversies, but uh, there are any number of particular uh, doctrinal points That uh, that we get people specifically raising, like I was taught the exact opposite of this in my school. What does that mean?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's so that's a question for your bishop.
0: Yeah, yeah. See, I think that's obviously the the beauty of faith. I mean, is one of the main reasons why I became Catholic because I saw that continuity of the faith down through the centuries. And um, aside from the Holy Eucharist, of course, that's the reason why I'm Catholic, but just that that continuity of just the old faith passed on from generation from generation to generation is is, is very um, attractive and, and beautiful why wouldn't you want to belong to a faith that holds fast to that i like your, your point earlier you, you talked about the catechism isn't really a place for the development of doctrine be, between you know councils and, and how that's all fleshed out between theologians and eventually by the episcopacy so I, I like that point. I think there is obviously some confusion around paragraph two two six seven concerning the death penalty and how that's being developed and how it was inserted at that moment. Um, but what are some other? What were some other? Have there been any other controversies over the history with um, things in being put into these catechisms? And by the way, we're speaking with Aaron Sang here. Aaron is the the president and founder of Chatbox. He's um, performing the work along with Bishop Athanasius, Athanasius Snyder to collect all these different catechisms that in different languages that have been published throughout the world over across the span of the last 2,000 years at a Catholic church. And, and so it's an exciting project. And so he's here talking with us on Voicing Truth and Reason in Guadalupe Radio Network. So were there any other controversies in the past, Aaron?
1: Well, there's certainly been a lot uh, since the Second Vatican Council. And there are a few instances in past centuries of a catechism uh, trying to get past the censors and get into print uh, with with some kind of error in it, some kind of manifest error in it. Um, There are less than five that that I'm aware of, that, that I know of any scholar who is aware of, that actually make it into print and then are, are later censored by the Holy See, um, especially in the Jansenist period. So you, you would get some that would have um, some kind of Jansenist errors or Gallicanist errors. You know, it's always those French, right? But the, um, <laughs> and the There would be some catechism. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Uh, well, they, they came later. That was more probable later. Uh, but yes, you, so, yes, you, some would make it, they would make it past the local censor uh, and, and have some kind of an error in it. But their memory would be so blackened that they were just they were just lost forever. No one knows about them. I mean, and, and we and we don't uh, we don't we don't reclaim those you know in our series um, okay. for good reason. So, but but following the the Second Vatican Council, there there's a I mean the most infamous is of course the Dutch Catechism, um, and, but there are several that follow really rapidly on the heels of that council. Uh, that yeah, that just can't be reconciled. I mean, they have passages that can't be reconciled with uh, the preceding tradition, and um, and that's a, on a lot of people's minds with some of the moral, the points of, of morality, uh, especially since then. Uh, pr- probably, it's probably the most raised that, that we hear of. It's probably the single most uh, kind of question mark, head shake uh, issue. Is is on um, is on worship, non-Catholic worship. So there, there's no really easy way to put it, This is kind of a head trip for, <laughs> for some people today, but no really easy way to put this. Uh, Non-Catholic worship was considered always and everywhere in the church as an intrinsically evil act, as in you, you cannot participate in non-Catholic worship without uh, committing an objectively grave, Against the first command, that is to say, this is regarded by every catechism, every every uh, any, any teaching apparatus prior to the Second Vatican Council regards this as uh, a gravely evil act that no authority can legitimize that can never be permissible under any circumstance. Okay, so so that's that's something of a head scratcher when you when you then read any catechism really since the council that that says the exact opposite on that point. So we, we hear that a lot from people is locally. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I, I read this in, in uh, this old catechism. And then again, in this old catechism, this old yeah. c- you know, what does that mean? So yeah. that's probably one point. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, um, as far as the catechisms that have been published, um, had there been any, interesting catechisms published just by religious orders have the Franciscans or the Jesuits ever came out with their own catechism have you seen
1: uh, well there there are many written by uh, by religious um, there are there to my knowledge none that are kind of the that were ever uh, kind of presented as the catechism of this order there are many. In fact, there's probably a higher percentage of Jesuit authors of of standalone catechisms, certainly than any other religious order and, and maybe even than uh, than secular priests. But uh, but there's a yeah, there's a high degree of, of authorship from consecrated religious uh, of doing catechisms, but they were never they, they, they aren't presented as um, like this is the Franciscan catechism or the Jesuit catechism. They were they were. Because, again, the the function of the genre is this is the the basic kind of simple truth of the faith, even for all the faiths.
0: All right. Thanks for coming on, Aaron Sane. You can find out more about him and his work on Tratavox.com, T-R-A-D-I-V-O-X. And this is the David O'Grady Show on Vado Lupe Radio Network. So I'll be back next week, same time, same place. I look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, you can visit me online at davidlgray.info. But until then, until next time, remember that Jesus loves you and is there for you. And to live your life like salvation matters. And may the abundance of our Lord's blessings and graces and favors fall upon you and yours. Thank you.
2: This is Dave Palmer here at the station. I am so thankful.